Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Richard Capriola, the author of The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. Richard has been working with parents and teenagers about addictions for over 20 years. He's a mental health and addictions counselor at the Menninger Clinic in Houston, and he specifically worked with adolescents and adults diagnosed with psychiatric and substance use disorders. He has dealt with all kinds of adolescent substance use issues, and he is a specialist at helping parents know how to navigate those things. Part of why I'm really excited to have him on the show today is because his expertise really lies in working with parents to support their teen and to get their teen the help that they need. Richard, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Looking forward to discussing your work. Tell me about these books. I've got two books from you here, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse, and also a workbook, which walks through a bunch of different exercises step-by-step for figuring out what kind of problems your team might be having, what kind of substances they might be using, and putting together a plan for how you can address it. What inspired you to create these books, and how did these come about? Well, I was really inspired to write these books as a result of my working at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. Uh, Menninger Clinic is a psychiatric hospital that serves adults and adolescents. Um, And I was hired there uh, about 12 years ago as an addictions counselor. So I worked on both the adolescent unit and the adult unit. In working with adolescents, I I worked a lot with, with the parents and with the families of adolescents. I would conduct the assessment, I would give the diagnosis, I'd meet with the families and, and really tell them about their, uh, their child's substance use history. And one of, the, one of the most common responses I got from parents after telling them their child's history of using alcohol or drugs was something like, I had no idea this was going on. Didn't realize, yeah. They didn't realize. Uh, Or if they did, they would say, well, I knew this was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. It was that bad, exactly, yep. So, and then I began to see that a lot of parents really don't have the resources to, to know what warning signs to look at. If they suspect there's a problem, where do they go? What kind of tests or assessments do they need? And then just a basic understanding of how alcohol and drugs work within their child's brain to both change the brain and influence their child's behaviors. And one of the important messages that I wanted to communicate was that you just can't look at the child's use of alcohol or drugs. If you look just at that, uh, 
and you don't look at the underlying issues, mm -hmm. you may be missing the reason why your child is using marijuana or drinking alcohol, because there's almost always an underlying issue as to why a ch child is self-medicating. Um, you know, a lot of the kids that I worked with who were smoking a lot of marijuana multiple times a day, when I asked them to help me understand why they were smoking so much marijuana, the number one answer was anxiety. Mm -hmm. It helps me with my anxiety. So if a parent just treats for the marijuana and doesn't treat for the anxiety, uh, chances are their child is, uh, is, is going to relapse and continue using. So I wanted to help parents. Not, not every parent has the resources to send their child to a, a place like Menninger Clinic. Not every parent, you know, can afford, you know, extensive uh, assessments and treatments. So I wanted to provide this resource for parents to help them. Well, I think you've done it. It covers all the different substances. It has statistics. It has science. And I like that it doesn't go too deep in the weeds. It just gives you the a kind of a brief overview of everything so then you can really get a good kind of high level look at what might be happening with your teenager and then you can sort of dive in deeper from there to specific problem areas. I'm glad to hear that because that's exactly what I wanted it to do. I wanted it to be uh, a resource that was not bogged down with a lot of technical technicalities, a lot of jargon, a lot of scientific information, because this really is geared towards the average parent who just wants a basic understanding of, of how drugs and alcohol work. What are the warning signs? What do I do? And that's basically what, what that tries to do. The, uh, the workbook is more directed towards the parents. It's to help yeah. them. It, it gives them exercises to, to, to basically work through some of the emotions that they're feeling. So talk to me about the drug danger zone. What is that? And why do we need to be aware of it? Well, I mean, parents need to be aware that um, the adolescent substance abuse is, is, is a big problem out there. I mean, kids uh, are turning to marijuana, they're turning to alcohol, they're turning to prescription drugs. And, and more recently, there's been an explosion in what's called vaping. Uh, and, and vaping nicotine has replaced cigarette smoking by teens yeah. and also vaping marijuana. So uh, parents just need to be aware of what's going on. A lot of these drugs are not aware of. Uh, a lot of the warning signs they're not aware of. So you know, this danger zone is, is very real out there. And, and, and most parents, I don't think, are attuned to what they should be looking for. They learn after the fact. They learn after some crisis develops. They learn after something has happened right. or they've noticed a change. Yeah, you have a graph here in your book showing the ages when illicit drug use begins. And it's almost the vast majority is between the ages of 14 and 20. So really important time period in terms of getting teens on the right trajectory for all kinds of risk behaviors. 
Absolutely. Almost all addiction uh, starts during the adolescent years. Uh, very few people get addicted to a substance after, say, age 21 or 25. Yeah. Uh, most, most of it starts uh, uh, during adolescence and those teen years. That's when people are more vulnerable to it. Uh, and that's when adolescents are more vulnerable to it. And the big danger with adolescence is, and I address this in the book, is that their brain is still developing. So you take a 15, a 16, a 17-year-old young man or woman, and you start pushing drugs or alcohol into a developing brain, you risk not only that person becoming addicted, so to speak, but also some severe consequences in terms of their cognitive abilities, their short-term memory, and the processing speed of their brain. I saw a lot of that with kids who were using marijuana, and the test results would come back. The processing speed in their brain was below average. Their short-term memory was imposed. And almost all of them said, it, it, it pretty well uh, significantly curtailed their motivation. Right. Yeah. Well, those adolescent years are very vulnerable years for uh, uh, for for any child. The, the brain is still developing, and 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 as that chart indicates it, that you saw, uh, it is a very vulnerable time for young men and women to be experimenting with drugs. So what are some of the signs that would tip you off to the fact that there might be substance use problem going on? What I recommend to parents, Andy, is that they pay attention to any changes that they notice in their child okay. uh, because, because those those might be signals that something's going on. They might not always be related to drug use. There could be some other issues going on like depression or anxiety or some other emotional issues going on. Uh, but it's important that parents pay attention to changes in their child. For example, uh, a child who may have been getting very good grades all of a sudden starts to perform poorly in school and the grades drop. Yeah. Uh, a child who used to participate and enjoy sports no longer is interested in the sports. Um, a, a child who took pride in their physical appearance no longer cares what they look mm -hmm. like. Uh, you know, a child who used to have a lot of friends and introduce the family to their friends and all of a sudden becomes very secretive about their friends. So parents need to be aware of these changes in their, in their child attitude, behavior, or appearance, not take them for granted, but look at them as, as cues or signals that maybe something's going on that they need to investigate. Um, it might be alcohol, drugs, uh, it might be some other emotional issue, but, but those are signals that something's going on that parents should not ignore. So then, um, when you notice those kind of things happening, what's the next step or how do you start to look a little deeper and diagnose what might be going on? The next step is to get an assessment done. Uh, and more likely than not, the child's going to resist getting they're not an gonna assessment. Like that they're, idea. <laughs> they're, they're not going to like that idea. They're not going to like that idea. They're going to say, hell no, I'm not doing that. Uh, but, but parents need to hold the line firm because it really is critical to get an assessment. And by an assessment, I talk in the book about a comprehensive assessment. Okay. We can't just focus on the alcohol or drugs because we might be missing some other issues. Mm. So the book talks about 
about what what's involved in a comprehensive assessment. For example, you want to get a complete medical workup. That's blood work, EEGs, AKGs, MRIs, you know, the whole the whole good solid physical examination. And you also want to get uh, an addictions assessment because there may be alcohol and drugs involved. And you want to get a psychological assessment, uh, either from a psychologist or a neuropsychologist, where you can look really deeply into what emotional or psychological issues might be going on with your child. Then you put, then you can take all those pieces and put the puzzle together to come up with a treatment plan and a diagnosis. So bottom line, if you suspect something's going on with your child, you need to get a comprehensive assessment done as soon as possible. So then that means you're going to a lot of different professionals and asking them all to kind of run different tests and stuff. So then how do you kind of integrate all that information together or keep track of it all? Well, um, I, I would say the first person you go to is your family physician if you have one, okay. because that's the person that's going to probably make some good referrals for you. Yeah. I would not necessarily say that you need a psychiatrist right away. A, a lot's going to depend on the outcome of the assessment, but you probably want to deal with a psychologist to do a good comprehensive assessment. Uh, many psychologists can also do a good addictions assessment. So you might be able to get both a psychological assessment and an addictions assessment from the same uh, psychologist. Uh, you'll want an MD to do the physical exam. So you might only need the, uh, uh, you know, your regular MD to do a good comprehensive physical and then recommend a psychologist. If the psychologist completes the assessment and decides, okay, this is what I think is going on, he or she may refer you to a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist, um, or may uh, refer you to a neuropsychologist to look a little bit more in terms of what's going on inside the brain. Mm. But I would start with my family physician and probably a psychologist. And that'll get you the baseline. And that will also determine if more people need to be involved in this assessment process. For one thing, I'm interested in, you know, uh, you mentioned there, the kid is probably not going to like this assessment happening. So <laughs> how do you recommend parents handle that? Um, what do you say? How do you get them? Are you just dragging them, kicking and screaming into the doctor's office to get them looked at? Or are you sort of, um, is there a way to, um, you know, discuss this with them and um, sort of get a little bit of buy-in from them that you're doing this? Or does it totally vary? It, it totally varies. Uh, okay. I think a lot's going to uh, going to be based on the kind of relationship you've developed with your child. Uh, you know, I, I recommend I, I once had a, a person ask me, well, I don't have a child who's a teenager yet, but what can I do now to prepare for that to to to, mm. to, to lay the groundwork for my child doesn't start using alcohol or drugs. And my recommendation was start developing that trust uh, and that open communication early. Bond. <laughs> yeah. uh, strength, strengthen the bond so that, you know, later on, you may find that, uh, uh, that that's been a good investment for you. Um, generally, a child is going to 
you know, kick and scream and fight about an assessment. So you may have to, you know, just literally insist that it be done. Uh, sometimes an incentive will work, you know, a reward, you know, we do this. Uh, but bottom line is one way or the other, you have to get that assessment done because without it, you don't know where you're going. You're in the dark. Um, and, you know, some kids will just go along with it. Others will fight you along the way. Yeah. Now, if it's a really serious situation and the child obviously is overdosed or taken drugs that have involved going to the hospital, right. um, then, then you may have to call 911. You might have to have an intervention and the police come and the child is, is taken to a hospital where they, where they can stabilize the child and then possibly admit them. Um, but, but it is critically important that you get that assessment done. Um, a lot of a lot of young men and women whose parents brought them to Menninger. I mean, they were at the they were at the end of their rope. They didn't know what to do. It had become really a serious situation, yeah. and um, and they had to they had to bring their child. Some of them come screaming and yelling, but but they held the line and they forced them into the treatment and uh, and they went through the assessment process, which took about three weeks. And so, if you're suspecting. Um, but you're not positive about substance use issues, do you mention that you say that specifically to your teenager? I'm worried about that drug and alcohol use, and I want to get a comprehensive assessment done. So, you know, I schedule that for Thursday, <laughs> we're going, or just, uh, how, how, you know, how do you approach that? I, I don't. I wouldn't necessarily jump to the conclusion that the child is using a substance. Yeah, it I could would, be something I would go along. totally different. It could be, and, and, and so I would sort of along, go along the lines of, look, I'm, I'm concerned about the behaviors that I'm seeing. Here are some examples of what I've seen. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm really worried. I want to help you as much as I can. You know, how about we start with having somebody give us a good assessment so that we can find out not only what might be what might be the cause, but also how we can help you feel better. Uh, in other words, sort of lay the foundation that what you're really trying to do is help your child. You're not accusing them of anything. You're not telling them anything. You're basically saying, I'm concerned. Let's together go find out what's going on, and then we can decide where we're going to go from there. Uh, because you're right, it might not be alcohol and drugs. The child might be depressed. The child might, uh, you know, might be suffering from some type of stress or some type of an emotional problem that they haven't talked about. And then, so what if that doesn't go go well? <laughs> what if they say, "No, I don't need that. This is stupid conversation over." Well, it's at that point then you sort of have to you have to put the ultimatum down. You will do this. You don't have a choice. We're going to do it. I, I dealt with a lot of kids who's that's that was their reaction to their parents, and their parents held the line yeah. and said, "No, we were going to do it," and didn't really give them a choice. Yeah. Um, and and ultimately they caved in. You know, they came. Right. They were they were mad. They were angry. They were upset. But that that calmed down after a day or two. Okay. Uh, some yeah. of them. Some of them. Some of them even being transported to Houston by their parents, you know, up until the last minute, we're trying to negotiate their way out. Yeah, of it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, but, uh, but the parents, uh, parents held firm. And I, and I think a lot of that Andy is because they're just so emotionally exhausted with this struggle that, that they've, they've drawn the line and they said, I can't deal with this anymore. You know, regardless of what my kid is telling me, regardless of how much they're fighting me, I'm, I'm, I'm emotionally exhausted. I, I need to get this resolved. Um, 
And so they bring the child one way or the other, they get them in, into the assessment. Now that's, that's, that's in severe cases. That, that's where the child is really addicted to a substance and is using it extensively. For, for most people, I think it, the, the plan is just to get your child to your doctor and take them to the family physician. Yeah. We just want to get everything looked at. You don't have to like it, but um, this is really important to me. And I, I, you know, I love you so much that uh, we're, even if you hate me for it, um, we're going to do it anyways. You talked a little bit about some of the effects of marijuana earlier, uh, but you point out on page 26 that actually only a small percentage of High school seniors believe smoking marijuana involves any great risk at all. 15% say maybe it occasionally poses a risk, and 30% um, believe that, you know, doing it regularly is a risk. So it's hard to have a conversation and saying, hey, this is not a good thing to do when your teenager maybe has these strong beliefs that it's really not a big deal. Why is that? Where do you think those kind of beliefs come from? Well, first of all, I think that they're seeing that more and more states are legalizing marijuana. Right. So if states How are, big of a states deal are could legalizing, it be? come on, everyone right. else <laughs> is doing it. It's it's got to be cool. It's got to be okay. What's the I'm big only deal? a few years really away from twenty one, anyways, and then it's totally legal. So what? Ex yeah. So so what's what's the big deal? Um, and they really don't perceive a lot of danger to it. I mean, some of them, they, their friends are smoking marijuana, they're smoking marijuana, they're chilling out, they're having a good time. What's, what's, what's the big deal? And, you know, to say to parents, you're overreacting, you're making a big deal right. about this. Um, what I found worked with these kids more than anything else, because, you know, Telling them it's illegal meant nothing to them. Oh, right. uh, you know, telling them it was bad for them meant nothing Ooh, to them. Yeah, right. you know, so so what? Um, <laughs> what what did capture their attention was the neuroscience. Mm -hmm. When I talked to them about how marijuana worked in the brain, and I would show them a picture of a, a diagram of a brain, and I would show them where marijuana attached to different parts of the brain, I had their attention because they were interested in the neuroscience. They were interested in how marijuana affected their brain. And if I had, a and I had the testing done, I could, I could show them, okay, you've been smoking a boatload of marijuana. Here's what's going on in your brain. The processing speed of your brain is below average. Okay, we know that because we tested it. Yeah. We, we know that your sh short-term memory is impaired. We know that because we tested for mm -hmm. it. So you tell me, you're smoking marijuana. You now see what it's doing to your brain. Your short-term memory is impaired. The processing speed of your brain is below average. And you tell me that your motivation has been sapped. So there you go. Now you got to decide what you want to do. And, and I would never tell them, to, to just quit. That's a decision they have to make. But I would encourage them to suspend their use. So I would say to the young man or young woman, okay, the processing speed of your brain's below average. We know that. The, your short-term memory is not as sharp as you would like for it to be. And your motivation's not so great. So how about we agree to stay off marijuana for three to six months? You pick it. And then get, 
and then stay off the drug for three to six months and get retested. Take some new tests. Take take some new tests because I'm betting that that processing speed of the brain will come back up to average. Your motivation will be better and your short-term memory will be sharper. And then you can decide for yourself what you want to do, but, but check it out. Mm. So that seemed to capture their interest you know, learning about how it was affecting their brain, because these kids are pretty bright. They do care about their brain. But I think that is one road into helping them understand the consequences of marijuana as an adolescent. You know, uh, my concern with using anything as an adolescent, again, goes back to the brain developing. It's just not a good idea to push things into a developing brain. You also mentioned vaping and um, juuling and nicotine, which is another huge thing right now that teenagers are doing. So what do we need to know about that? And, you know, what kind of strategies can parents use to communicate about that and make sure teens know that we don't approve of it? Well, almost half of, of seniors in high school are vaping some type of substance, primarily nicotine and and marijuana. It is exploding. If you look at the statistics over the last few years, vaping of nicotine and vaping of marijuana is just off the charts. It's it's rapidly increasing. Um, and, And I think a lot of it is because of the availability of the substance. There's also a perception among young people that that vaping somehow is safer than smoking cigarettes. Sure. The bottom line is whether you smoke a cigarette or you vape the nicotine through a through a, a jewel or some other device, you're still putting something into your lungs, right. one way or the other. Um, but but it is it is becoming a, a major problem in the adolescent community and one that parents need to be aware of, uh, and, and even teachers because I'm sure you've seen these these. Uh, vaping instruments that look like usb drives so you know teachers don't know that that they think it's just a usb drive kids are clever they know how to fly under the radar and so the same sort of thing your teenager is going to feel like hey this is not a big deal everyone does it um it's not smoke smoking causes cancer but vaping is all good right so is that a similar thing where you're going to start testing them and showing them that it's having effects on their brain or what is there a different approach that you kind of use for vaping? Well, you know, when people used to ask me, well, what's the danger with marijuana? You know, my number one response was the biggest danger to marijuana is respiratory, you know, because you're sucking something like smoke into your lungs. Yeah. doesn't matter whether it's coming from a joint or from a vape or vaping pen. It's still substance going into your lungs. Um, and, and that's just not a, a good thing to be doing. And again, I think it comes down to working with your child, developing a relationship, helping them understand, you know, the dangers involved and setting an example and, you know, letting, letting your child know that this is unacceptable behavior.
It's, and, and why? It's unacceptable because it's it's hurting you and I care about you and I care about your long-term health. You know, you may be thinking vaping nicotine is cool now, but in 10 or 15 years, when you find out that the ramifications of that involve some type of respiratory disease, you're going to look back and say, well, maybe it really wasn't worth all that fun I was having. And and as a parent, I wanna I wanna keep that from happening for you. Yeah, I think being informed about all these things so you know what the um, consequences are is important. And then some of these things like vaping, there's we don't know that much yet. Um, and studies will have to keep coming out over the next 10 years and such. I've been reading a lot of books about aging and longevity recently. I was reading um, something interesting that was talking about one of the strongest um, predictors of Alzheimer's is uh particulates in the air um, and people who who live in areas with higher levels of particularly nanoparticles in the air um, much more likely to develop cognitive decline as they get older um, which I hadn't realized before but um, really interesting starting to think about how these things um, you know sucking all those particles into your lungs from a vape pen especially starting so early in life um, you know we don't know what's going to happen later on, but it uh, could all be some really, really potentially um, serious consequences that we're just not aware of yet. I think that's an excellent point because, uh, as you mentioned, we do need to continue studying the effects of the long term effects of a lot of the behavior that we're doing, whether it's, you know, inhaling a substance like marijuana or vaping nicotine or, or breathing polluted air. Yeah. You know, we, 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 we don't know the long term consequences. So so what does that mean? That means because we don't necessarily know the long term consequences. Are you willing to gamble? Yeah, you right. know, are you willing to gamble with your health? Because you're basically gambling that my behavior now, smoking marijuana, taking drugs, uh, is is not going to affect me 10 or 15 years down the road. That's the bet you're placing. And, and, and you know, the risk is your health because we really don't know. We really don't know. It may not know for years down the road what the effects of, of a child taking some of these substances are. Now, sometimes we do know. Sometimes through the testing, we know, like the example I gave with marijuana, that the short-term memory has been impaired or the processing speed's been impaired. Those are fairly, fairly quick things that we can figure out. But in terms of the respiratory system, yeah, the right. long-term medical consequences may, may not show up for 5, 10, 15 years down the road, yeah. especially for a young man and woman who might be heavily into, say, vaping nicotine. Well, yeah, because also, yeah, nicotine, um, from what I've read, is one of the actually substances that has the most evidence that it actually enhances neural functioning. So um, I don't know. I don't know if we want um, to run the tests on their brain. We're going to show them, wow, actually, you're looking pretty good here. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. You might run into that from time to time. Yeah. But again, it's the long-term consequences that may have an opposite effect. Yeah, exactly. We're here today with Richard Capriola talking about what to do if you suspect your teenager might have a substance use issue. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Why are they using the drug? Mm. You know, people don't 
always use drugs because they're stupid. Usually there's an underlying emotional, psychological, psychiatric reason why somebody's using a substance. This usually starts to develop at very young age, even before high school. And I think the reasons for that is because these so-called inhalants are readily available. Around A lot of them in are in the garage. They're exactly their household products. but mostly girls who were cutting themselves. And, And a lot of the cutting went on because of anxiety. It relieved their anxiety, or, or maybe it was uh, uh, having been abused by somebody. So they would come to the hospital and we would be very, and, and their, their, their coping skill was cutting and marijuana. They used both. Um, so we'd bring them into the hospital and we could keep the marijuana away from them. That was easy. They were in a hospital. Yeah. So what do you think happened to the cutting? It increased. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Because, you know, not dealing with the underlying issue, you take away one coping skill, like you were saying earlier, they're going to come up with another one. And again, so what's the key? Address the underlying issue. If it's um, post-traumatic stress disorder, you need to deal with that. If it's anxiety, you need to deal with that. If it's a depression, you need to deal with that. Uh, Because if you don't, the behavior is probably going to continue. You might be able to delay it, but yeah. it's, it's going to come up or it's going to redirect itself to another substance or behavior. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.